Well, this morning, we come to the end of our brief series looking at the resurrection of Jesus from John's Gospel. And fittingly, we end our series with the end of John's Gospel, chapter 21. And we want to ask the question, what sort of an ending does John give us to his account of Jesus' life, death and resurrection? Because you see, endings are important. No matter how good or powerful a book or a film or a piece of music is, if the ending is weak, then that can sort of tarnish our enjoyment of the whole thing. And artists really worry about how to end things. In an interview I read a few years ago, John Cleese of Monty Python fame admitted that the question of how to end a comedy sketch was one that always caused him great anxiety. And that was why, actually, in Monty Python, most of the sketches didn't actually have an ending. They would just stop with someone coming in going, let's stop this right now. So there was this sense they couldn't find a satisfying ending. So they just stopped it midway. So how do you end a great novel, a great piece of music, a a, a film? Because there's that danger, isn't there, of a weak ending, of a sense of of anticlimax that leaves you feeling dissatisfied or disappointed. Well, I mention that because some Bible commentators see John 21 as an example of an anticlimax. The argument goes that John should have finished his gospel at chapter 20, verse 31, with his purpose in writing, rather than tell us of yet another resurrection appearance of Jesus that they think doesn't really go anywhere. They think in some ways John just gives up midway through in this account. And some commentators argue John did in fact end at the end of of chapter 20 and that some later writer added on this chapter 21 in a sort of a desperate attempt to finish things but maybe made a mess of it. See, the events of John 21 for these people are an anticlimax. After the great heights of Thomas's confession of Jesus as my Lord and my God in chapter 20, this incident between Jesus and the disciples just, just doesn't measure up for them. Well, I don't want to go into a big discussion about that debate this morning. What I do want to do is to argue that John chapter 21 is actually a wonderful ending to John's Gospel. I believe it was written by John, and I believe it's here to give us some vital truths about what it means for people to entrust their lives to the risen Jesus. At the end of John's resurrection narrative, this chapter stands as a vital piece of encouragement for Christians. Because in John 21, John gives us a portrait of the risen Jesus. And it's a portrait that should encourage us that not only is Jesus worth following, he's also the one who sustains us as we follow him. He's the one who goes ahead of us and leads us as we follow him. This is an amazing picture of Jesus in this chapter. And I believe John wanted us to see these truths about Jesus before we ended his gospel. Because if we miss these truths, then we won't be able to keep following Jesus. We will run out of steam. We will burn out if we fail to see that Jesus here is the Jesus Christians follow. You see, up to now, in John's Gospel, the risen Jesus has actually been a deeply challenging figure, even a slightly frightening one. Just think back to chapter 20 and his words to Mary Magdalene in verse 17. He said, don't hold on to me. Don't cling to me. I have a message for you to share. Or his words to Thomas in verse 27 of chapter 20. Stop doubting 
and believe. See, the risen Jesus is a challenging figure and he demands a response from us. But as a result of that, if you're a Christian here this morning, you might think, well, is he just a bit too challenging? Can I really say I can follow this man, this, this risen king? Surely Jesus is just too vast, too terrifying a God to cope with someone like me, to cope with someone with my track record. How could I claim to follow him for the rest of my life? Or if you're not a Christian here this morning, again, maybe the question is a similar one. You, maybe you're drawn to Jesus. You like the sound of him. You like the idea of knowing him. But again, he's just a bit frightening sometimes. The commands he gives us are just too high. Love your enemies. Go and tell the world about me. Stop doubting and believe. Are Jesus' commands just impossible for us to obey? Does he just give us these commands and then leave us to get on with it? Well, if you ever thought like that this morning, you're in a similar position to the disciples at the beginning of John 21. And Jesus has a message for them that's a message for us as well. So let's look at this chapter together now. See, up tonight in John's Gospel, Jesus has appeared to his disciples while they're still in Jerusalem in the week following Passover, the week following his crucifixion. And by now Jesus appeared to all of them, including Thomas. But Jesus has come and gone. He hasn't stayed with them as he did before his resurrection. And eventually the disciples make their way home, back to the region of Galilee, referred to in verse 1 as by the Sea of Tiberias. And John doesn't make it clear why they travel home like this. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus actually commands the disciples to go back to Galilee where he will meet them after his resurrection. So at least in part, the disciples may be obeying Jesus here. But look at how John portrays them in the opening verses. I'll just read verses 2 to 3. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. See, John only tells us of seven of the disciples here. But I want us to see, they don't look like men who have just seen the risen Jesus. See, back in chapter 20, verse 20, they were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. But here, they appear directionless, leaderless, a bit lost. You can almost imagine the scene in verse 2. The disciples are sitting together in a room. They're, They're quiet. They're still trying to process all that has happened. They don't know what the future holds. And Jesus, they feel, has left them. And then Peter breaks the silence. I'm going out to fish. The disciples look round at one another. They've got nothing better to do. No other plans for the future. And so they say, we'll go with you. Again, it is hard to believe from verse 3 that here is a group of men who will later turn the world upside down in their commitment to tell all people everywhere that Christ is risen. At this point in their lives, they don't know what to do with themselves. In fact, If some commentators find the events of John 21 a bit of an anticlimax, 
after the great heights of John 20, then I believe the disciples would agree with them in verse 3. I think that's partly the point John is making in this chapter. After the initial joy and excitement at Jesus' resurrection, now the disciples are left wondering what to do with the rest of their lives. Jesus is risen, but how is that meant to affect them? Do they just go back to their old lives? See, for Peter, James and John, at least, that could be what they're exploring here, going back to their old jobs as fishermen. They're asking, were the three years we spent following Jesus, is that over now? Has Jesus finally left us to go on to do great things in his resurrection power? But now that he's risen, does he, does he not really need us anymore? Has he no use for us? You see, after the heights of John 20, the disciples are now faced with the rest of their lives. And they don't know what to do with them. And in this I want to suggest that, that many Christians here today can relate to how the disciples feel here. Because after the beginning of the Christian life, often we are left with doubts and questions. The Christian life often begins with great excitement. A person suddenly realises who Jesus is, how much they need him. They ask Jesus to forgive them and give them new life. And in some sense you could say there is a honeymoon period of joy, of thankfulness, of saying, yes, I am loved by Jesus. I matter to him. I belong to him. But then after a while, that honeymoon period ends. And sooner or later the question, well, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Comes up. After that joy initially at following Jesus, there can be uncertainty, even anxiety, about who is this person I'm following? How can I claim to follow him? Maybe we can feel directionless like the disciples here. Not sure where to turn. Uncertain just how our relationship with Jesus is meant to change us. See, we can experience times of joy, but spiritual highs, spiritual times of thanksgiving and joy on their own are not enough to sustain a Christian. And it's something I've experienced in my own life. Quite a number of people from Northern Road were at New World Alive last week, which is a big Christian festival in Wales. And I've been to World Alive a few times myself, and times away like that are just deeply exciting and nourishing for us. In my own life, there have been times of spiritual growth as I've heard the Bible taught by really gifted speakers, as I've sung God's praises with hundreds of other Christians, as I've had time to really reflect and pray about where my life is headed. But then you see, I've got to go home. I've got to go home and leave that exciting place. And I'm still called to follow Jesus. See, what happens when I'm not surrounded by those Christians and experiencing that that spiritual high? What happens when I'm not hearing God's word taught every day by gifted speakers? When I'm not singing God's praises every day along with hundreds of other Christians? See, in my experience, often... A spiritual high like that was followed by a real low, by a period of uncertainty, of doubt. Well, did I really feel like that? Was Jesus really real at that time? See, if you want a comparison with that, look at Thomas in verse 2. A few verses earlier we saw last week, he's declaring Jesus as my Lord and my God. 
He's going to follow Jesus no matter what. And now he's fishing with the rest of the disciples, not knowing what to do with himself. See, in verses 1 to 3 here, the disciples, they're, they're flat. They're directionless. They are lost. And I think many of us have felt like that. Maybe even many of us do feel like that today. To add insult to injury at the end of verse 3, we're told their fishing trip is basically a waste of time. That night, they caught nothing, John tells us. Even with experienced fishermen among them, they don't catch a thing. Without Jesus with them, their lives feel empty and pointless. And that fishing trip just reflects how they're feeling. But see, in verse 4, Jesus breaks in. And Jesus wants them to see who it is they are following. Jesus wants them to see that he has not left them on their own as they fear he has. In fact, he wants them to see that he will never leave them on their own. That he's committed to leading them and sustaining them. The risen Jesus shows them just who he is in the following verses. First of all, he shows he's here to lead and to guide them. That's verses 4 to 6. I'll just read that for us. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. See, without Jesus with them, they have no success fishing. But the minute Jesus turns up at his direction, they put their nets to the other side of the boat and they end up with an enormous haul of fish. And you see, straight away in this incident, Jesus is teaching the disciples a lesson. A lesson he thought he was teaching them in John 15, but they hadn't grasped it yet. And that lesson was, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. See, the disciples think they're on their own now. They think it's up to them. They think it's up to them to fill their lives somehow. But Jesus is telling them, I'm still here. And I'm here to lead and guide and direct you in the way you should go. And you see, that's a lesson every believer needs to remember every day of our lives. Apart from Jesus... We can do nothing. I can't stand here and preach apart from Jesus. We can't pray apart from Jesus. Our direction as a church needs to be set on a dependence on the risen Jesus. Our attempts to share our faith like journeys, like doorway, needs to rest in a dependence on Jesus. We cannot do this in our own strength. The disciples are discovering that and Jesus wants them to get that message here. Apart from him, we can do nothing. In our work life, how do we expect to to represent Jesus in in a Christ-like way without first depending on him, without spending time with him, without asking him to change us? How can we expect to be parents, caring for the children God has placed in our homes, without asking Jesus to help us to be patient, to be wise, to be loving, to point to him in everything? How can we be a friend 
without asking Jesus to help us to be faithful, to be committed to someone. See, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Without Jesus with them, the disciples didn't catch a thing. But you see, with Jesus leading them, the disciples learn they can achieve the seemingly impossible. See, look at verse 6 again, and that bumper haul of fish. Can you see just what an amazing encouragement this would have been to the disciples after a long night of nothing? And you see, this has been an encouragement to Christians throughout history, and it can be an encouragement to us today. With Jesus directing them, the disciples get an enormous haul of fish. And with Jesus directing us, we can achieve the seemingly impossible for him. See, it's no coincidence that elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus likens the task of, of sharing the good news about him to a fisherman seeking to catch fish. And in this miracle, Jesus encourages us that under his direction and in dependence on him, we can have confidence that people will come to know and trust him. We can have confidence that Jesus will save people. He has the power to do that and he is willing to do that. See, a while ago I was um, speaking at a student Christian Union lunch bar and I was asked the question, does God still perform miracles today? And to be honest, I ummed and ahed a bit. Um, I referred to reports of miracles in the developing world, which there are some amazing reports of, of miraculous healings in the developing world. And I thought, well, that, that's maybe something. But then, then it struck me. I was losing sight of the greatest miracle that God performs. The greatest miracle God performs and keeps on performing today is to bring people into a relationship with him. It is to take people cut off by their sin, dead in their sin, the Bible tells us, and to give them life, to bring them from death to life, to bring them into a relationship with him as their God. And then it struck me again, if, if you're a Christian here this morning, you're a miracle. You might not feel like a miracle, but you are one. You are living proof of the miraculous power of Jesus at work today. Jesus can achieve the impossible. He can bring sinners from death to life, and he is doing it, even among us here at Malden Road. Again, at our most recent monthly prayer meeting, First Tuesday, we heard about a lot of exciting contacts that are happening in the church. At least one person recently has come to faith in Jesus through our youth groups. Peter and Bex are running baptismal classes for people wanting to get baptised. Emily Barman is reading the Bible with a number of contacts from Doorway and having exciting developments there. Jesus is at work among us. He is drawing people to himself. He has not left us on our own. That's what Jesus is teaching the disciples here. And he wants to teach us that this morning. And at that same first Tuesday, it was pointed out that these things are happening because people in the church are praying. Whether in home groups or in the Thursday morning prayer breakfast or through e-pray or at first Tuesday, people in the church at Maudlin Road are praying. And then Jesus is using those prayers and working among us. So you need to recognize the link between our prayers and what Jesus 
does. We need to see Jesus' hand at work through our prayers in bringing people to himself. And then we need to thank him for that. To say, like John, it is the Lord doing this, not us. It is the Lord at work. He hasn't left us alone. See, God answers our prayers. That's one of the biggest things we need to get our heads around. Something we all will struggle with at times in our lives. But God answers our prayers. And prayer is a solid acknowledgement that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Therefore, we go to Jesus and we ask him to use us. See, Jesus can do what looks impossible through his disciples. And that's what Jesus demonstrates to them with this haul of fish in verse 6. You see, so far, John 21 has shown us that Jesus is committed to leading his people. He can achieve the, almost the impossible through them. But then in verses 9 to 14, we see perhaps an even more remarkable aspect of who Jesus is. See, Jesus doesn't just ask us to serve him. Because the risen Jesus is committed to serving us, to sustaining us as we live for him. See, in verse 9, we've got an amazing picture of the risen Jesus. I'll just read that for us. Verse 9, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Then Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. See, here we have the risen Jesus in John 21. He has defeated sin and death. He has demonstrated his supreme power over all creation. He's demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is God's king who will judge creation. And what does he do? He makes breakfast for his followers. He serves them with some fish and some bread he's prepared for them. See, I want us to see that that is a breathtaking picture of Jesus, the servant king. The king over all creation builds a fire, cleans and prepares some fish, bakes bread over that fire, and then feeds his disciples with it. You see, the Jesus we serve, if we are Christians here today, is not a distant king issuing orders from on high. No, he is a king who is committed to feeding us and sustaining his followers with what they need the most. And what the disciples needed the most after a long night of fishing was breakfast. They needed fish and bread, so Jesus gave it to them. See, what's to see here? Jesus knows what we need. He knows how we are formed. He knows our weaknesses, our frailties. And see, there are times that in our pride we can kid ourselves that we're invincible, that we don't actually need rest or sleep, that we don't actually need to take it easy because that's just a sign of weakness, the sign even of a weak commitment to Jesus. But you see, look at John 21 here. Jesus never indulges in that sort of over-spiritualizing rubbish Jesus knows we need food. He knows we need sleep. He knows we need rest and friendship. 
He knows we need things like, like good music, like, like walks in his creation, like sports and cooking and playing and reading. And when we deny ourselves those things in Jesus' name, actually we're dishonoring him. And we're heading just for burnout. We're over-spiritualizing our lives in a way that Jesus does not. Jesus knows what we need. And he never asks us to do more than we can cope with. He is committed to sustaining us as we live for him. But again, if that sounds too mundane for us, if that sounds like aiming low in our lives, we'll look at verse 11 again. See, John just can't get over what Jesus enabled the disciples to catch. And in fact, it seems as if he's gone to the effort of counting the number of fish, 153. He just cannot get over what Jesus has done for the disciples. And see, that's another encouragement for us. Jesus knows our weaknesses, but he isn't hindered by them. Jesus is compassionate, but he is still committed to achieving great things through his people. Even as he feeds us and sustains us. That's not just to give us a life of ease and comfort. It's to equip us to follow him and to represent him to the world. See, Jesus is committed to bringing glory to himself. And he does that by calling weak and frail people and then demonstrating his power in us. You see, Jesus wants to sustain us and he wants to use our efforts to achieve the impossible. But if we need to rest, then we know Jesus invites us to rest. Jesus promises to feed and sustain us. And the disciples needed to hear that. And I believe we need to hear that today. And then, speaking of Jesus calling weak and frail people to serve him, we come in verse 15 to Jesus and to Simon Peter. And a fourth commitment Jesus makes to his disciples. See, we saw back in verse 7 that Simon Peter heard that it was Jesus standing on the beach and the minute he heard that, he wrapped his outer garment around him and jumped into the water. See, Peter abandons his fellow disciples with this huge haul of fish to bring it in on their own because he needs to see Jesus. Peter has unfinished business with Jesus. See, throughout Jesus' public ministry, all the Gospels agree that Peter frequently acted as a spokesman for disciples. He had real leadership qualities and Jesus recognized that. But for all his qualities, Peter ended up letting Jesus down, abandoning Jesus, running away from him when Jesus was arrested. And here on the beach, Peter sees an opportunity to talk with Jesus again. He swims to shore to see Jesus, to, to just talk with him. But actually, it is Jesus who initiates the conversation in verse 15. I'll just read that for us. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. See how Jesus frames his question. Do you truly love me more than these? Jesus is pointing at Peter's pride. 
See, throughout Jesus' ministry, Peter had often proudly pointed to his own courage and commitment to Jesus as being greater than the other disciples. If all the others run away, Jesus, I won't run away. If they all abandon you, I never will abandon you. And now Jesus asks a question that takes Peter at his word. Do you truly love me more than these, Peter? But look at Peter's answer. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. See, there's no bluster in Peter here. There's no no attempt to compare himself with the other disciples. No attempt even to justify himself and his denial of Jesus to the Lord. All Peter can do is appeal to Jesus' knowledge of him. You know me, Jesus. You know everything about me. You know what I did, but you also know that in spite of that, I love you. See, all Peter can do is answer Jesus' question honestly and depend on Jesus to forgive him. No special pleading, no grand gestures the way Peter used to act. Just, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. See, Jesus promises his followers complete forgiveness. And that's what he gives to Peter here. And John wants to see Peter as a, as a picture of a repentant sinner. Because all of us will fail Jesus at some time or other. We fail Jesus in ways we are not even aware of. But some of us may even fall into serious sin, just as Peter did in denying he even knew Jesus. But what we need to see from Peter here is that Jesus offers complete forgiveness to us if we will come to him and be honest with him about our failures and weakness. See, Peter did the right thing here. When he saw Jesus, he jumped out of the boat and he swam to him. He confessed his love for Jesus and he found Jesus to be forgiving. And as you look at that conversation they have, it's not an easy one for Peter. We need to be honest about that. Jesus asked Peter if he loves him three times. The same three times Peter denied even knowing him. And by the third time, verse 17 tells us, Peter was hurt. It is a painful process owning up to our weakness and our sin. It's a painful process facing up to the ways we let Jesus down. But at the end of verse 17, Peter finds himself forgiven. That painful process of confession is worth it. He finds himself accepted by Jesus. And that is how we need to come to Jesus. Honestly, humbly asking him to look into our hearts and to see that we love him and want to be forgiven by him. Because if you're a Christian here today, your only qualification to share Jesus with people who do not yet know him is that you're a sinner forgiven by him. And if you're a Christian here this morning, your only qualification to encourage one another and to serve one another here in this church is that you're a sinner forgiven by Jesus. So remember that. Peter is a humbled man in John 21. And we need to learn from his humility if we are to follow the risen king. So Jesus shows Peter and the other disciples he is with them. He will lead them, sustain them. He is willing to forgive them. But there's one last thing he has to share with Peter. 
Because you see, this picture of the risen Jesus is so glorious. The demonstration of his care and power for us is so encouraging in many ways that, that Peter and the other disciples might have expected that, well, the Christian life is going to be a doddle. It's going to be a life of triumph and, and ease and comfort because Jesus is with us. But then in verse 18, Jesus is open with Peter. That is not what he can expect. Verse 18 to 19. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. See, Jesus is open with Peter. Following him will ultimately result in Peter's death. In verse 18, you will stretch out your hands, almost certainly refers to crucifixion. And by the time John had come to write this gospel, Peter had almost certainly already been executed in this way by the Roman authorities for following Jesus. See, if Peter follows Jesus, there is a cost. The cost for Peter is his life. But see verse 19 again. Jesus still says, follow me. Jesus tells Peter directly that following him will not be easy, but he urges him still to do it. And in fact, Jesus' openness with Peter about the cost of following him is actually part of the encouragement Jesus gives us here. Suffering in the Christian life is not something hidden away in the small print of the Bible. None of the biblical writers hide from the fact that living for Jesus in this world will bring suffering. Peter's own words in 1 Peter 4, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Don't be surprised by suffering, Peter tells us, because Jesus promised him it would come. And it will come to us as well. The vision we have as a church is summed up in the, in the phrase we have in our, in our publications. It's delighting in God, displaying his glory. And I think when I first heard that, I... I thought it meant we were aiming to be a church of happy, comfortable Christians all the time. But it didn't. The great paradox of the Christian life is summed up brilliantly by, by John Piper. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And often that only happens when other things let us down. When the other things in our lives we thought would bring us satisfaction don't whether that is the people in our lives or the hopes we have for our lives or our health or even our church life. We delight in God when we recognize that only he is worth praising and trusting, no matter what the cost. Just as Peter follows Jesus, even knowing that it will mean he will die eventually. See, it's only when we recognize that God alone can satisfy us that we will truly delight in him, even in the face of the suffering that will come. For some of us, that, that cost of following Jesus will seem minimal. For others, the cost may feel like a lot to bear. But even as we face up to that, that truth that Jesus leaves 
with Peter. We need to see all these other truths that Jesus has left with Peter. Jesus does not leave us alone to meet the cost of following him. He leads us. He blesses our efforts for him. He sustains us and he promises to forgive us. John 21 is here to show us we can trust in Jesus no matter what the cost. Jesus is faithful and gracious and glorious. And he's not going to leave us on our own. So John 21 begins with the disciples thinking, what now? How can I live for Jesus? How can we devote our lives to a risen Lord who is so much more powerful than we are, who is so much more glorious than we are? But then Jesus meets them and tells them, you will do it by depending on me. I will be with you. I will sustain you. I will feed you. I will forgive you and pick you up when you need to be picked up. I will strengthen you because I am good. And that's what we need to see from John 21. Jesus is good. He is committed to his people. He is loving and he is going ahead of us to lead us to the place he has prepared for us. We are never alone. We have the risen Jesus with us and he can keep us strong until he comes again. John wants us to see that as we follow this Lord. And we need to see it if we're going to praise him and trust him.